0: Thank you. sir please check your mail i have sent you the uh, information like how how you how, how have to log, log in for, for for today's interview thanks paul and deep i've logged in uh, let me know when you're ready for me to count to 10. but i'm i'm about four minutes early so we don't want to start now but uh, just give me some heads up when you want me to count to 10 and start Hello, monetization nation. I'm Nathan William, your host. And today we're going to talk about uh, how to run a focus group and interview customers to find passion statements. This is part of a series that we've been doing, and this is uh, live stream number five. Uh, about passion marketing, and we've talked about identifying our ideal customers in a previous episode. We've I, we've talked about passion statements in our last episode. We talked about how to identify uh, the five whys to take people through the five whys exercise so we can find the passion statements. And today we're we're going to talk about actually running those interviews and the focus groups. So I want to start off by telling you a story. Uh, I went to a pizza restaurant. Uh, in Fort Worth last week, and and uh, I loved this concept of a pizza restaurant. It was it was completely different from any other pizza restaurant uh, concept that I I've ever uh, where I've ever been. Uh, the name of the restaurant is Deluca's, and it's a Gaucho pizza. Gaucho is actually the right way to say it, and it's uh, Gaucho is a phrase that comes from a state, Brazil, um, that's, that's, uh, known for cowboys and, and meat and stuff. And, and, uh, and if you've ever been to a Brazilian restaurant, these are the restaurants where they bring around the meats to you. You go to the salad bar, you fill up on the salad bar, get the beans and rice, and then they bring around 12 different kinds of meats and, and you, you eat until you have to, have to loosen the, the, uh, button on your on your pants and can't eat anymore and and uh, that's the normal brazilian rodizio pizza experience this restaurant was different instead of bringing around the meats to your table they brought around different kinds of pizza pizzas to your table so for example they had a buffalo chicken pizza or they had a tiki masala pizza or they had a greek lamb pizza or they had a Brazilian, uh, steak and, uh, it's called picanha, uh, a Brazilian steak and garlic pizza. Uh, they had a spinach and bacon pizza, these amazing pizzas. And a lot of them were themed after different, uh, cultures and and geographic locations. And, and I loved it. And, and they had some fun appetizers. In fact, I think the best thing of the whole meal was the appetizer. They brought, um, shot in shot glasses they brought a lobster bisque and then brought homemade artisan bread to dip into the lobster bisque and oh that was amazing and then they had these uh spicy meatballs and and some salad that went with it as your appetizers and then just brought you I mean 20 something different kinds of pizzas and so as many of you know and you've heard me share on on my previous shows, there is a pizza restaurant in the city where I live, Rexburg, Idaho, uh, called Righteous Slice, and I love this restaurant, Righteous Slice. It's a it's an artisan pizza that they make in a in a fired oven right there in front of you, and uh, the crust is amazing. the The guy that runs this this Righteous Slice pizza restaurant is a former stealth bomber and air force fighter pilot and he's a professor of entrepreneurship and he's just passionate about making pizza went to italy and got trained in making pizza and just makes some of the best pizza i've ever had and and when righteous slice opened um after the first year righteous Slice was open i had taken my family and so many of my employees and and business luncheons and dinners to Righteous Slice and they had a, a rewards program and they kept track of who spent the most money at Righteous Slice. And and I was in the top 10 of, of customers for Righteous Slice that had spent the most money. And so because of that rewards program, he correctly identified that I was in his love group. And he involved me in things where he asked for my feedback about new menu items and service offerings and, and such, and invited his, his love group to a special dinner, which unfortunately I wasn't able to attend. And uh, what do you think I did last week after I ad- went to this pizza restaurant in Fort Worth. This amazing new pizza concept. What do you think the first thing on my mind was, who was the first person that I wanted to share it with? I called the owner of my local pizza restaurant, Righteous Slice, and I told him all about this pizza concept and about these new pizza flavors and this new concept about having an all-you-can-eat pizza um, experience and bringing them all around to your table like a Brazilian restaurant and and he took my call, and he listened to my ideas, and and he loved many of those ideas. And he said, Nathan, thank you so much for sharing. I think we're going to implement a whole bunch of those ideas in in what we're doing. And and uh, that's part of identifying your love group and cultivating uh, the relationships with your love group, is that they're going to come share these ideas with you. You don't have to come up with all of the ideas yourself, but people like like me are going to share the ideas. And I knew to call the owner of that restaurant, and I wanted to call the owner of the restaurant because he's listened to me in the past. He's he's rewarded me, and he's made me feel like part of the inner circle. He's made me feel like a VIP of of his restaurant, and I want to be part of helping create his experience. So that's what I want to talk about today is how do you create these relationships with your love group once you've identified the love group how do you actually uh do the interviews and and do these focus groups so you create experiences that they want to share their ideas with you and and before we talk about before we go any further I want to talk about the why 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 do we want to interview our customers why do we want to do focus groups and there's a saying that I I say way too much people make fun of me for saying this so much but i i say the more that i listen the smarter i am when i have to make decisions myself for my ideal customers because i think i understand my ideal customers i'm usually wrong but when i take the time to listen to my ideal customers i'm going to be a lot more effective about giving them what i want and that's the key point of this is I do interviews, I do focus groups, I do surveys so that I can find out what my customers want and then give it to them. It is really that simple. And, but that is one of the most important business strategies that, that we, can, we can take or leverage as entrepreneurs, find out what our ideal customers want and then give it to them. And this is the way to do that, the surveys and the focus groups and the, and the interviews. We, the other key reason why we want to do these is we don't just want to give them something good. We need to create products and services and marketing messages and mark, and marketing channels that our customers are passionate about. And the only way to do that is if we listen to them through interviews and focus groups and surveys. Okay, so... Uh, at the beginning, people usually ask me, where do we recruit the people? And if you are an existing business and you have customers and you can go through your existing customer l- list and find the people that have referred to you most often, or the people that have bought the most from you, like Righteous Slice did with me, um, if you can find who are your best customers, that is the best place to recruit the people from your focus group. That is your love group. You uh, If you don't have enough customers yet, you need to identify your demographic and then go recruit them. And Facebook groups are often a good place to recruit. Uh, You might do partnerships with people that have email lists of people who you think are in your your ideal customer group. Um, You can recruit from those. You can run ads on Facebook targeting people with the demographics that are in your love group. Uh, Lots of different ways, but you've got to be very specific. If you're in the stamp collecting niche. You don't just want all stamp collectors, right? You want to find the people that are most passionate about stamp collecting. Another bit of advice that I have for you in running these focus groups or interviews is to always record them. I, When I'm running them, I have people take notes and we also uh, record the audio and or video if I can of them. Uh, There's many times where it's been very valuable to go back and see exactly how people responded to a question, uh, get the exact wording they said that maybe we didn't write down or I didn't remember correctly. Uh, People also ask me, how do I get people there? And entrepreneurs often make the mistake. This is a very, very common mistake. Probably the biggest mistake that entrepreneurs make in running a focus group is they expect everybody to do it for free. And the reality is people are busy and their time is valuable, and it is not reasonable to expect people to come into a focus group or or spend time on the phone with us when, when we're not giving them anything in exchange for it. And even if they will do that, uh, I don't think that's fair to treat people that way. right? If you want to bring people back for another focus group and you didn't treat them right the first time, you didn't give them value the first time, it's going to be really hard to get them Back, uh, I believe you. we need to do a really good job of saying thank you to the people who participate in our focus groups and surveys and interviews so that we can regularly pull them in and they are excited to participate in those each time we do it. Uh, that lesson was taught to me by Mary Ridberg. She was our PR director at adoption.com uh, very early on, and she was so good about getting people to do anything. And her secret was that she was really good at saying thank you immediately. She would create beautiful gift baskets and, and immediately the same day, take them these gift baskets and, and say thank you in lots of other amazing ways. And by saying thank you, uh, really well, uh, through a gift and, and something of of substantial value, that is the best way to get people to do what we want, what we need in the future. Okay, so I have a general rule. When I do a focus group and I'm looking for about an hour of their time, or I'm doing an interview and I'm looking for about an hour of their time, I expect to give $50 of value. Now, that doesn't mean it has to cost me $50, but it needs to be perceived with $50 of value. So if you can go buy $50 of movie tickets, but you can get them for half price and only cost you $25, that's great. It only costs you $25. The actual cost is half of what the perceived cost is. That's fine. Um, if you give them your product and your product has a retail value of $50, but it only costs you, $15 of actual hard cost. That's an ideal scenario. It only costs you $15, but is worth $50 to your customer. So however you do it, I recommend if you're looking for an hour of their time, give them $50 of value that tends to work out really well. When we go less than that, it, it tends to be a lot harder to get the people we want to attend those focus groups or those interviews or, or participate in those surveys. Okay, but if you're gonna give that value, don't be afraid to ask a lot of questions. When I write my surveys, I often have 50 or more questions in my surveys. Or when I do my focus groups, these are not fast surveys in 10 minutes. There are a lot of people that'll tell you that when you write your surveys, you should do them really fast and short. They should have five or six questions. And, And that's true if you're expecting people to do it for free. But if you're gonna pay people, you're gonna give them $50 worth of value, you can expect them to put a lot more time into it. And the reality is the types of surveys and focus groups and interviews I'm talking about here are not five or six questions. You're not gonna be able to get enough value that you want and you're gonna have to be continually repeating the surveys and the focus groups if you only ask five or six questions at a time. I am a much, bigger fan of asking the, the surveys that are 30 to 60 questions long, putting those together and then compensating people accordingly. So now you can see why I need to compensate people is because I'm asking a lot more out of them. Uh, but if you're going to put this together anyway, you might as well get answers to all of the questions that you need, or, or at least a much larger group of those questions. Okay. Then the next bit of advice that I give you in putting together the surveys or focus groups or interviews is make sure you have the right people. And we talked about that earlier. I, I talked about, you know, stamp collectors, you're not just looking for any stamp collector, but you want to find people that are passionate about stamp collecting, um, that, that buy the most and, and sell the most and refer the most, who are the best customers. Um, if you're enterprising, If if you're selling to an enterprise CEO, don't ask a college student or don't ask a a marketer about that, right? If you're selling to marketers, ask passionate marketers. If you're selling to enterprise CEOs, you can only ask passionate enterprise CEOs. Make sure you you absolutely are only interviewing and and getting data from people who are part of your love group. A great example that I've given before and I'll, I'll give again is, is in adoption right if we're if we're asking for feedback from people who who love if we're trying to get feedback on an adoption service then we have to have to ask people who are hoping to adopt or who who have adopted um we can't get feedback from just uh anybody about an adoption service or if we know that 80% 80% of the time women buy our adoption service, then we need to make sure we're only asking women about, about that product. Who Who is your ideal customer? And those are the only people you want to get answers from. And often when I ask questions, the very first question I ask, questions I ask in the survey or the interview or the focus group, qualify them to make sure that they are part of that love group and i may go through and and get all the answers in the survey but they did not answer the questions correctly at the beginning that they were part of the love group i'll still give them the 50 dollars of value but i will not count their responses to to generate the results for that focus group if they did not belong to the love group if if i'm looking for people who have already adopted or people who are do a lot of stamp collecting and I ask the question, have you adopted and they say no, or I say, do you have a large stamp collection and they say no, then even though I compensate them for the survey, I drop their results out and we do not consider any of their answers in the results from those focus groups or those surveys. Okay, so I I wanna talk a little bit about open-ended questions versus closed questions And, and both of them are very important here and And I will exp- I'll explain why you've got to have both of them. Some people will tell you only closed questions and and that's wrong. Um, closed questions are important because you can uh, more easily calculate numerically results. Um, when you give people, you're you're saying, how passionate are you about this passion statement, right? and And you want to get a numeric result, and then you can calculate those and and find the highest level passion statement. Include those. Those are very important. Uh, but you also have, have to ask the open ended questions. For example, you want to, if you think you know the highest level passion statements, great. Numerically ask them to rate those. But in addition to that, you need to also ask what other passion statements are level 10 passion statements that we did not include in the survey and get them to also give you those in free form. Um, That also works really well for lots of other types of questions like pain points. Um, If we want to know what the biggest problems are or the biggest pains that people are trying to solve, let's list out the ones we know and and let them rate the ones we know, but make sure you also ask them what other pains or passions did we, you know, are, are... Highest level that we did not ask you in this survey. Make sure you give the open form opportunities for people to tell you the things that you did not go into the survey already knowing. And I'll give you an example why this is important. And I've shared this story before as well. So we we went to uh to do a, a series of focus groups for a food store and we asked about a lot of passion statements, like I love to be prepared and I want to protect my family, you know, those kinds of passion statements. But in the end, we found that that even higher than any of those passion statements, the highest pa- rated passion statement was I love bacon. And people were very passionate about I love bacon and we ended up recommending to that food storage company that they create an I love bacon line or a bacon lovers line of their food storage. And making sure we asked open-ended questions and asked people for additional passion statements um, and and rating those additional passion statements that opened up new opportunities that would not have been possible if they could have only answered the questions that we asked about the passion statements we already knew. So my point is the key takeaway here, make sure you ask uh, closed questions. Uh, where appropriate but also uh, be sure to ask the open-ended questions so you can get the answers that you don't already know another really important thing to know in, in going into these focus groups and surveys and interviews and and it's specifically important for the focus groups is to avoid groupthink And it's appropriate in surveys too, if you were to show the answers to the surveys to people before they took it, you would be, you could produce groupthink where people kind of answered the questions based upon how, how the other people answer a lot of, a lot of us, we look for this social proof, this validation, and we look at what other people think before we give our answers. And we let that sway us in our results. So don't ever show your survey results before you have people take the survey. Also in the focus groups, a lot of times people, you know, have people vote with their hands and, um, or they have them say the answers out loud and that leads to groupthink. So if you have them vote with their hands, um, I've, I've developed a method where I have them put up two hands, they rate on a scale of zero to 10, with zero being the lowest level of passion and 10 being the highest level of passion. And I have everybody do it on, you know, one, two, three. And on three, they put up the number of fingers. And everyone has to put up their fingers at exactly the same time. And they can't change their fingers once they've, they've put it up. We wanna know what they think and not what they think after looking at everybody else's answers. Um, if you're not doing it with, with a set of numbers um, that they can put up with their fingers, uh, the best way that we do that is we write out a survey. We use Survey Monkey or or one of the other surveying tools. Google Surveys works really well. Um, Google Forms, I think, is the name of it actually. And and we write out the survey electronically, and then we give every single person in that focus group an iPad or some other form of tablet and we have them answer the questions on the survey, on the tablet first, and then we talk about it. And we we don't discuss anything until they've already written it down and they can't change their answers after that point. That way we prevent groupthink from affecting the answers of the survey. Otherwise, you get one very dominant person in a focus group that just sways everybody in that group one direction, and it makes your your answers and your data completely worthless. So you avoid that by uh, using fingers at a time, you avoid that by using iPads with surveys before it's discussed. Another really important point uh, in in doing surveys and focus groups is to make sure that you don't sway the answers. We as as the people putting on the survey or the focus group can sway the answers very easily. We can ask a question in such a way to drive an answer one direction. We've got to make sure we never do that. What we're after here is listening effectively. We're not trying to get data to support uh, what we already believe. We're trying to get correct data and what people really think. And if we write leading questions, uh, we're going to make our survey results completely worthless, and and that is that's not what this exercise is about. Another way that that we need to be very careful is that we. So I'll, I'll give you an example. We once did a focus group. There was a a business I was helping that wanted to do a specific digital service, and we found their focus group we found their ideal customers. We did a focus group of their ideal customers. We brought them all together one evening. We provided food. And we found out in that focus group that that our ideal customers did not want the product we had designed. It was a resounding no from our audience. And... uh It would have been real easy for us to sway their direction, to try to talk them into it, to try to convince them of it. But at a certain point, we need to listen to no. when our group says, no, we need to discontinue that product or service. And we need to find what the yes is or go a different direction. There are so many yeses. There are so many directions we can go with our businesses. There's so many different business ideas we can create. When we find a no in a focus group or a survey, don't push it. Don't find a way around it to get people to say yes and to sway them to say what we want them to say. We need to look at the no as a blessing and, and be grateful that our ideal customers have told us what they don't want so we can avoid that failure a lot of people talk about how half of businesses in America go out of business within within just a few years of, of starting. How many of those businesses could prevent that failure if they asked their customers first what they wanted and then gave the customers what they wanted and were super passionate about? If we get a no from our audience and we do it anyway, we are probably going to put ourselves in a spot that we are one of those businesses that go out of business within a few years. We're trying to sell something that our customers are not super passionate about. Okay, so then people ask me a lot kind of what kind of questions they should ask. And I've told you that the first set of questions I ask are questions to make sure that they're part of my love group. You know, if I'm asking about stamp collecting, let's ask about their stamp collection and how long they've been doing it and how much money they spend on it and how large it is and, you know, how many conventions they go to and which Facebook pages they attend. And from those questions, we can find out if they really are part of that love group. If I'm doing a stamp collecting uh focus group, and they don't follow any stamp collecting Facebook groups, and and they haven't bought any stamps over the last year, they're probably not in my love group. So start with that. Um, I would also ask demographic questions about gender and age and and revenue or, or income, uh, geographic location, those kinds of things that, that helps you find after the fact, um, it might help you break down who your best customers are so let's say you went in and you found people that were in your love group Um, you might be able to break it down and say okay of the people who said they wanted this product the most where did they live what gender were they in how much money do they make Um, what where do they go online what you find out once you've found this group of people who rated your product and service as a level 10 passion, you want to then go back and understand who are those people so that you can replicate those in your advertising and, and other marketing efforts. So two sets of things you look at so far. Um, make sure they're part of your love love group. Ask those questions and then ask the demographic questions. So once you found the level 10 passions, you know... are the people that most likely have those level 10 passions, and you can replicate it in your advertising. The next thing that I cover in these focus groups or surveys or interviews are passion statements. Uh, I take the passion statements from the one-on-one interviews, and I I do surveys to, to ask a larger group of people. Or if I'm doing the the focus group for the first time, I will brainstorm what I think are the highest level passion, level 10 passion statements. Or after we've done the the five whys exercise, we'll find the highest passion statements from that and then use those in the focus group. So uh, take the best passion statements you can find and have people uh rate those on a scale of, of zero to ten zero being the lowest and ten being the, the highest level passion um and, and gather that data as part of your surveys and focus groups another thing i love to do is trying to understand the problems and the pains that they want to solve we have to build our our products and services around the highest level passions or problems and pains and understanding what are those biggest problems they're trying to solve Um, Like A lot of times our products and services, they solve multiple problems, they solve multiple pains, but when we understand, okay, here's the one or two or three biggest pains and problems they're trying to solve, it helps us position our product and our marketing around those. Uh, Another thing that I love to do that's been very valuable in these focus groups and surveys is identifying the products and features they want most. So if you sell... Uh, protein powders, right? right? And you might ask them in the surveys what flavors of protein powders they like. Get get their feedback for new features and products. If if you're thinking of of launching these five new products, ask your audience first. Uh, before we go to the effort to release a product or a service, it's it's essential that we go to our audience first and we ask them what they really want. And then we give them what they want. It's really not that complicated. It's really not that hard. And the surveys and the focus groups and the interviews to gather the data of what they want, which products and features they want so that we can give it to them. And that I believe are the key, those are the key points that I wanted to bring up Uh, in today's live stream. So uh, just in summary, find your ideal customers, use the five wise exercise, find the the level 10 passion statements, do interviews, focus groups, and uh, surveys. Uh, Once you do the focus groups, you probably want to do a survey that goes out to about 200 to 250 people, so you have a st- a large enough statistical sample that you can you can kind of validate what you learned in the focus group, and then we're going to talk about in in our future live streams. We're we're doing this each Wednesday at noon Mountain Time. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the ways to then leverage this information uh, that we found about these these passion statements and and uh, the uh, That we collected in in these focus groups and surveys so that's all for today thank you so much for joining me if you enjoyed this episode i encourage you to go to passionmarketing.com and download a free copy of my passion marketing ebook you can also follow us on monetization nation at uh, facebook instagram twitter uh, youtube or your favorite podcast platform Again, thank you for joining me and I wish you success as you uh, leverage your focus groups, interviews, and surveys to find your passion statements and roll out passion marketing in your business. Have a great day.